NCAA's new alliance, the Saints' quarterback battle, and the Mets' collapse. This is Tantalus Takes, podcast number three, as you can see here, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So thank you for watching. I'm going to jump right into my first topic, the NCAA and their new alliance. So as you can see here, article from CBS Sports. Headline, short on details but long on philosophy. Alliance of Big Ten, ACC, Pac-12 sends message to SEC. Back off. So, if you're unaware, that alliance that they're speaking of is between, as it says in the headline of this article, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12. The only two Power Five conferences not in this alliance are the SEC, which is football's college football's powerhouse conference. They have Alabama. They have LSU. They have Auburn. They have Texas A&M. Big-name schools, lots of money, schools that love to win football games. They love to recruit. They also have Florida in there, plenty of teams. And the other conference not mentioned is the Big 12. And the interesting thing about the Big 12 is they are in jeopardy of losing their two biggest schools, Texas and Oklahoma, to the SEC. They, the, there, was, there was rumors uh, earlier this, this offseason that uh, Texas and Oklahoma were interested in leaving the Big 12 and heading to the SEC. So, what I can only assume is that the Big Ten, ACC, and Pac-12 are so worried about college football essentially becoming a one-conference sport where all the teams and all the players end up in the SEC because it's basically the NFL junior. I mean, how many players that get drafted come from the SEC? Yes, the ACC has four, uh, schools like Florida State. They have schools like Clemson. So, so some big blue-chip programs. Uh, the AC, or excuse me, the Big Ten, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, great, great schools, and the Pac-12, probably one of the weakest, probably the weakest Power Five football conference, but still Stanford, Washington, uh, etc., Oregon. So, so my assumption is that when when they looked at this alliance, and the, when these conferences are looking at, uh, at the future of the sport, it it, it could end up being the SEC, and everyone else. And, and if that's the case, I think these conferences want to protect against a scenario where the SEC almost isolates itself or brings in so many teams, they, they pick the, the top two or three teams from every other conference, and it just becomes basically another version of the NFL. And what I could see happening is this Alliance League and the SEC turning college football into a two-conference, AFC, NFC sort of deal where you send the best two teams from either side or you have a playoff format where you draw from both sides and then that's how you decide your national champions, your national champion because that's kind of how it works anyway. We've had multiple SEC teams in the college football playoff and it, these other schools are getting to a point where they can't really compete with Alabama. It, it's really Alabama at this point, but LSU was successful very recently. Auburn has had success. And there's, the SEC has the best TV deal. They have the best coaches. They have the, a lot of the most recent history. And it's really become, if you go to the SEC to play football, odds are, if you perform there, your chances of going to the NFL and having a successful career are really high. So I think what this alliance is doing between the Big Ten, ACC, and Pac-12 is trying to combine their forces and become a conference that together, or a group that together, is as powerful as the SEC because alone the Big Ten is not as powerful as the SEC. The ACC is not as powerful as the SEC and the Pac-12 is not nearly as powerful as the SEC. But together 
they I think it adds a lot more leverage. It adds a lot more. Uh, it, it simply increases the the competitiveness and the uh, talent in the player pool if you combine three entire conferences. Sixty percent of Power Five schools will now be in in one quote unquote alliance that they are trying to form. So, as you can see here, still in place is a growing general feeling that college football is simply moving too fast after Texas, Oklahoma, and the SEC declared their intentions last month. High-profile stakeholders immediately expressed their concerns about college football playoff expansion once those teams left the Big 12 for greener, more southern pastures. And that's sort of what I was getting at, where it, it, if these teams want to protect their, and these conferences want to protect their, uh, their, their uh, status, and, and their, their ability to draw fans, their ability to host exciting games, exciting conference championships. They want to avoid a situation like the Big 12, where they just lost their two best teams and really the only Big 12 teams that get a national audience, Texas and Oklahoma. Other than that, yes, there are some good teams in the Big 12, but it is that conference has nothing near what the SEC has. And I, I can see a similar fear setting in, especially for the ACC, because a team like Clemson and a team like Florida State would absolutely have the leverage to leave the ACC and head to the SEC. And at that point, if, that, if something like that happened, if Clemson or Florida State or Michigan or Ohio State in the Big Ten, if they, if they left their conference, it would cripple the conference. It would kill the conference, which is essentially what is about to happen to the Big 12. We're, we're about to lose a Power 5 conference, in essence. And that could happen more than once. And that's what this alliance is expected or hopeful to prevent. They're, they're hoping to prevent a situation where teams leave a conference, take their revenue, take their fans, take the national audience, the TV audience, everything, and head to a bigger conference. So that's what this alliance is intended to prevent. And personally, I, it, the details are not out there yet, but I'm a fan of this because I want as much spread out talent. I want all conferences to be competitive. And I, I wish the college football playoff would be expanded so we can get at least one team from each uh, conference, the winner of each conference, and then maybe three other teams, which would get us eight playoff teams. I, I think that's how it should have been done. I don't know what they were thinking when they implemented a four-team college football playoff, and I think that has led to a a lot of these problems because if you look at the winner of the SEC, essentially guaranteed to make the college football playoff. But if you win the Big 12, you can miss out. That's it, That has happened. And same thing with the other Power 5 conferences, not the SEC. If you win the SEC, the competition in that conference is already so strong, you're already guaranteed to make a playoff spot. A lot of times, the team that loses the SEC makes it. We had a Georgia-Alabama national championship game. Two teams from the same, they play each other during the regular season. And they played each other in the SEC championship game. So that, that's something that I am not a fan of because I want to see more of an Alabama versus a Stanford title game or like an Alabama-Notre Dame title game that we had. Uh, a few years ago, 2012, I believe, or 11. So those sort of things are the things that make college football great. If every team consolidates to one conference or two conferences that are, that's the whole sport, then it's just the NFL again. And there's a lot of things that people don't like about the NFL that are because of the way it is formatted, if that makes sense. So I'd like college football to stay as true to its conference format its competitiveness being spread out and all those sort of things. So if that's what this alliance is going to guarantee or try to, to, to work for, then I'm a fan of it. So that's about as much as I could say about this at this point because this is very 
very recent news and uh, not very planned out as as the article says it, it is short on details and it's not much of a written agreement as much as it says here a handshake agreement or a a uh, a declaration of intent for these schools to work together, these conferences to work together to achieve whatever their goals are. My next uh, topic of discussion is Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill, the Saints quarterback battle. And most recently in the Saints' second preseason football game, they beat the Jacksonville Jaguars 23-21. Score is not very important because it's a preseason game. But if you look down here at the quarterback stats, Taysom Hill... 11 completions on 20 attempts, 138 yards, and a touchdown. Jameis Winston, 9 completions on just 10 attempts, 123 yards, 2 touchdowns. And both of those touchdowns were to Marquez Callaway, who I will talk about in a minute, but he is quickly becoming one of my favorite players as a Saints fan, Marquez Callaway. But in my opinion, this quarterback battle is over. Yes, Taysom Hill put up more yards than Winston in that game, but on double the attempts. That's barely a 50%, or it's just over a 50% completion for uh, Taysom Hill. Jameis Winston had one incompletion, nine, nine for 10. That's incredible for a guy who struggled with accuracy in his career and decision-making. Uh, if you watch that game, those highlights, those throws, especially the deep balls to Callaway, put it in a place in double, cover, in double coverage where Callaway was the only player who could make a play on the ball. Either he caught it and it was a touchdown, which is what happened, or it's an incompletion, no harm done, you move on to the next play. Those are the things that Jameis Winston absolutely has the talent to do. He, his arm talent is still, even a year removed from starting, one of the best in the league. His deep ball is unreal. His ability to throw jump balls to receivers is almost second to none besides guys at the top of the league like Mahomes and Josh Allen and Tom Brady. And I can go down the list of those guys. But Jameis Winston, talent-wise, is just up there with those guys. And I think a year of sitting behind Tom Brady is, or excuse me, behind Drew Brees is the best thing that ever happened to uh, Jameis Winston so far in his NFL career, and I'm expecting him to come out and ball for the Saints. And not that Taysom Hill is not talented. I, I will admit that he's a talented player. He's a talented thrower of the football. He's got a good arm. He's a freak athlete, super physical, can run like nobody else, especially a quarterback. But I don't think the Saints are better off with him starting because production at quarterback-wise – their value is about the same. I would even say Winston is the better passer. But when you have Winston starting, that frees you up to do so many other things with Hill as a tight end, a running back, a wildcat quarterback, or any anything else you need him to do. He's blocked freaking puns for crying out loud. If he's at quarterback, that all goes out the window, and Winston does nothing. So if Winston starts, he can contribute, and then Taysom Hill is free to contribute everywhere except quarterback, and even at quarterback a lot of the time. So I really don't see why the Saints would even consider starting Taysom Hill over Winston at this point because Winston, to me, has proven that he can uh, handle an NFL offense with, with efficiency, with poise, and, and hopefully avoid the turnover problem that has plagued him throughout his career, which is still the big question mark. We don't know if James Winston is going to be able to limit his turnovers under, under 20, which is still a lot, but he, he's, he's done more than that. He had 30 the last time he started in a full season. So that, that is the biggest question. But if, if Winston can put the turnovers on the back burner and, and just execute the offense with efficiency, the Saints will be so much better off because Taysom Hill is so valuable as a Wildcat Swiss Army Knife player. So that's my take on it. If I'm Sean Payton, I don't think either of these guys really even need to play the rest of the preseason. 
to, to, to prove their, their spots. I think Winston has the starting spot locked up, and hopefully in the regular season, week one against Green Bay is going to be a big test for him. But uh, I, I expect big things. And then one other thing I'd like to talk about uh, about the Saints, uh, Marquez Callaway, who I mentioned, had some incredible, incredible catches in that, in that first half against Jacksonville. As you can see, five receptions, 104 yards, 20.8 average on those catches, which is unreal. One of them was about 50 yards over the middle, beat double coverage, came down with an incredible catch on an incredible throw for a touchdown, first score of the game, and two touchdowns in that game. He also caught another really nice back shoulder fade, diving to the, to the ground uh, just inside the end zone, which was, which was very, very nice. Special, special play all the way around, quarterback to receiver. And uh, Callaway is going to have uh, – he's got big shoes to fill in the absence of Michael Thomas as he recovers from his injury. Um, but he's he set himself apart from the other receivers on the Saints team, that's for sure. Because, you know, th- that ability that he showed to make contested catches and and run, uh, run very uh, crisp routes and get open, get separation over the middle of the field, that, that is not something every wide receiver can do. And – Marquez Callaway can do it. So that's very exciting as a Saints fan. A lot of people expected this offense to regress with the injuries, with the retiring, uh, the retirement of Drew Brees, but I, I am not in that camp. I expect their offense to be about as good as it has been for the last 10 and 15 years. Because Sean Payton is an offensive genius, I will not hesitate to say that. And finally, the New York Mets. Oh, boy. If you're, not, if you're a Mets fan, you might want to switch this off at this point. And uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I'm not even going to get to every single reason why this team is, is collapsing right now, but I'm just going to go over a little bit of it because it, it's honestly pretty disappointing from where they were starting of the season. And when they started the season, you, what I saw at least was a team that was struggling offensively especially, but they had great pitching. And you, I, there was just this feeling that all they needed to do was get hot on offense and then they would be one of the best teams in the National League. But they never got hot on offense. They spent a ton of money on Lindor. And Pete Alonso, has, he's their best player, I'd say. And, you know, we were just waiting for these guys, you know, oh, wait for Alonso to get hot, wait for Lindor to heat up, wait for the offense to get going because the pitching can carry them to about 500. But if you want that extra 20 wins or 30 wins to become a 100-win team and win your division, you need hitting, especially because – the team that's in first place right now, the Atlanta Braves, has a ton of hitting. Every single guy in their infield has hit 25 home runs practically. The Mets are almost the exact opposite of that. And if you look at Lindor's stats, he's hitting 223 on the season, just 36 RBIs, 688 OPS, which is below average, one of his worst seasons in his career. And that's coming off last year, which was probably the worst season of his career. He's degressing. Three years in a row, he's gotten worse. And... You know, they spent $300 million to bring this guy to New York and also trade, you know, made a trade to get him in the first place, then extended him. And he's been, he's been replaceable, frankly. And uh, that is, is a big disappointment for this team. Another guy that they invested in, Javier Baez, having a much better season, but still not doing too much offensively. 756 OPS, which is below his career average. Below his career batting average, career average 261 this year, 241. 24 home runs and 69 RBIs, which is nice. But when he's not hitting, he gets out. He doesn't draw walks. He doesn't do many things besides hit home runs. Defensively, he's a big plus for them, but defense wasn't the problem. Offense is the problem for this team. 
And finally, Pete Alonso, who, like I said, probably the best player on this team, below his career average in OPS by uh, 0.04. So 886 career average this year, 841 OPS. His on-base is down slightly, and his batting average is up slightly. I mean, not having a bad season by any means, but still not dominating to be an MVP-type player like you might expect from him. Although the season's short, and he could easily end up with 40 home runs and 100 RBIs. But it still is not translating to wins, and the rest of the lineup is anemic. And if you look at their ranks, their NL ranks, so of the 15 teams in the National League, in a lot of these categories, they are bottom three or four. If you look at at hits, they're last. Doubles, they're last. Runs, they're last. Home runs, 12th. RBIs, 13th. And and across the board, in, in batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS and OPS+, plus, not higher than 10 in any of those categories. You're not winning a division without having a top six or seven offense in your league. And this team is nowhere near that. One positive thing for them, according to The Athletic, the Mets are ramping Jacob deGrom back up. Why they made that decision and what it means for the ace. That's the headline of this article. And it says, an MRI cleared Jacob deGrom on Wednesday to begin throwing again. He, it is his first time throwing since being shut down over a month ago, or less than a month ago, excuse me, on July 30th, about uh, just about a month ago. And that's, that's great news for them. He was the only reason they really won any games in the first half of the season. On pace for a historic Cy, uh, season, would have been a unanimous Cy Young if he finished the season as hot as he started it. But getting him back at all is great for this team. But the fact that they're four games below 500 right now, just a 1% chance to make the postseason, very, just very disappointing for this team because this was supposed to be a year where they contended for the World Series, and they're not even going to win their division. They're not even second in their division. The, the Philadelphia Phillies have outperformed the Mets with, I would say, a less talented roster. I, I can't even begin to tell you what the problem with this team is because you look at the lineup on paper, and it, it seems strong. I mean, Baez and Lindor, if you told me that four years ago, that those guys would be on the same team next to Pete Alonso, next to the rest of these guys, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, Dom Smith, Jeff McNeil, etc., you'd think that's a, a top-ten offense in the entire league, and it, it has not been anywhere near that. So... Yes, there is time to turn it around for this team, but it has to be on offense. And, you know, at what point are we going to say Lindor is, is is just not as good as he once was? At what point does it go from a slump to a serious permanent regression? Because, yes, it was, you could say it was a slump last year when he played 60 games, not a full season. You can blame all that on a lot, a lot of things. But 120 games into another full season, and he's hitting 223. That's that's a lot of cause for concern for me, especially when you're paying the guy three three hundred and whatever million dollars for the next ten years to play shortstop for you. If he doesn't start actually hitting, the Mets are doomed because all their money is locked up in a guy who's underperforming his contract. And then they're gonna have to pay Alonzo, and they're gonna have to pay Javi Baez if they want to keep him around. Degrom's due for money. You know they're they're in trouble if unless the guys they are paying start living up to the contract. So. Until that happens, this team's in a lot of trouble, and I would call it a collapse from the first half of the season to now because everything they had going for them, which really wasn't much, is gone now, especially because DeGrom has been out since the All-Star break, 
practically. He hasn't played much at all the second half of the season, and he was the only thing that was keeping them above water. And the offense is, the offense is anemic, like I said. So until that changes, I, I really don't expect this team to get back in the playoff picture. They're, they're going to need a serious win streak like the one the Atlanta Braves were just on to recapture that division. But I don't really see anybody stopping Atlanta with how hot their offense is. So that's all I have to say. Tantel's takes. Thanks for watching.